Today from the Global Lane, on the verge of exploding another nuclear device. Will the threat of sanctions stop Kim Jong-un? The only way to deter North Korea would be to actually show, like I think President Trump did, that we are stronger and more forceful, more willing to use force against them if they were to attack us. $200,000 for drag queen shows in New York City public schools and libraries. The co-authors of this new book are not surprised. It happened gradually, and then it happened suddenly, as Hemingway would put it. It was a shift from a seeking truth through God to seeking truth or validation to government. And for this Father's Day, special memories of a presidential dad. Dad was, he was a pushover. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. North Korea may be on the verge of conducting a new nuclear test. However, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is warning Kim Jong-un that exploding another nuclear device would further destabilize the region and lead to a strengthening of international sanctions against the regime. Here to discuss this and the failed policies of totalitarian and communist regimes is Daniel DiMartino. He's a commentator and economist with Young Voices. Daniel also serves as the founder and director of the Dissident Project. Daniel, it's good to talk with you again, and I want to discuss the work of the Dissident Project because it's so important to educate young people about the dangers of socialism. But first, new economic sanctions against North Korea. Do you think more sanctions will deter Kim Jong-un from moving forward with a new nuclear test? Your thoughts? Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that there's much more room to sanction North Korea. North Korea is already uh, an economy that has self-isolated. In some sense, they have sanctioned themselves. Uh, and, and the U.S. will need to be able to cut off North Korea from Chinese or, or Russian uh, weapon shipments and, and, and equipment. And I, I think that that's going to be unlikely. So I think that the only way to deter North Korea would be to actually show, like I think President Trump did, that we are stronger and more forceful, more willing to use force against them if they were to attack us. Yeah, that, that seemed to work, didn't it, for a while anyway. Um, and I know China and Russia have opposed sanctions uh, at the U.N. Uh, recently. The EU and U.N. may need to reimpose sanctions on Iran as a result of that regime's decision to shut down cameras of their nuclear development sites. And, of course, tough sanctions are already in place and kicking in against Russia because of its war in Ukraine. So just how effective, Daniel, are sanctions against despotic regimes? I think it really depends on the case, right? So with North Korea, there's not really much more we can do. They, they are an economy that is totally in shambles. But Iran, Venezuela, Cuba are, are much more different regimes and much more different geographical and economic situations. Uh, I think that sanctions have a role in the sense that they're not going to overthrow the regime, the sanctions. That's, that, that's the mistake that people make if thinking that they do. The, the role of the sanctions is to reduce the revenue resources of each of these uh, evil regimes such that they can't do more damage outside of, their home, outside of their territory, right? Such that Iran doesn't have enough money to build nuclear weapons or such that Venezuela, the Venezuelan regime doesn't have enough money to buy weapons to oppress its people. But it's not going to overthrow them. Well, let's talk about Venezuela because of their human rights records. President Biden did not invite Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela to the Summit of the Americas last week. Yet because of sanctions on Russia, Biden's looking to ease sanctions, or already has to some extent, against Nicolas Maduro and Venezuela for oil. Is there a bit of inconsistency here? What do you think? 
Well, I think that the administration is trying to appear good and on the side of democracy, while at the same time, unfortunately, appeasing these dictators. And it's a terrible mistake because there's no reason to allow Maduro to profit from oil exports to, to the EU or to anywhere else. If they do this, it, it's just going to give more money to, to these cronies on these, on these evil people. So the sanctions on Venezuela are very different from the sanctions on, say, Iran or Cuba, in that they're targeted at the members of the regime and at the state economy, not at the private economy. You can send things to Venezuela very easily and, and, and no problems with that. And so I think that we should continue that. And, and we're not really talking about that much oil, are we? Well, it's not like Venezuela can produce much more, but unfortunately what Maduro is doing is that he has invited Chinese, Iranian, and Russian companies to extract our Venezuelan oil. In some sense, these supposedly anti-imperialist regimes are the ones that have allowed foreign uh, state powers to, to take our natural resources. Daniel, tell us about the dissident project that you have founded. Why did you start it, and what do you hope to accomplish? Yeah, well, so the, the viewers and, and listeners can, can know a little bit about this. The Dissident Project is the first ever Speakers Bureau composed entirely of young immigrants who came from socialist countries to the United States. We have eight people who came from Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea, and Hong Kong. And we're going to travel to schools at no cost all over the United States, uh, you know, high schools more specifically, uh, to tell our stories and connect it to what's happening in America. So the students learn what's the history of socialism. Why is this such a terrible system? And why we should always avoid it in America? In the same way we learn about the history of fascism, of slavery, and of other political systems, we have to learn about socialism, the system that has killed the largest amount, number of people in world history. And, and do you really think you're going to get into some of these schools? I mean, socialism is spreading throughout our public school system. Do they want to hear about it? Well, in the first place, Florida passed a law that requires every high school to teach uh, against socialism and communism. And that includes firsthand experiences and a, a lesson of at least 45 minutes every year in every high school instead of Florida. So that is already 2,000 high schools that are legally required to teach about this, and we're providing them a resource of firsthand experience uh, at no cost to them. But beyond that, there are schools that have teachers that are not socialists, most of them, right? Almost all of them, probably. Okay, hearing firsthand from some young voices, dissidents uh, who actually experience socialism firsthand in their home countries. Daniel DiMartino, yeah. dissident project director and young voices commentator. Thank you, Daniel. Always a pleasure talking to you. Likewise, guys. Here on the home front, taxpayer dollars to support drag queen shows in New York City public schools and libraries. $200,000 worth. Johnny can't read, but he can learn how to dress up and drag and strut his stuff. Parents in the Big Apple are shocked, but our next guests are not surprised. They say this is just one example of how progressives have replaced traditional instruction in American public schools. Pete Hegseth is a New York Times bestselling author and co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend. And David Goodwin is founder of the Ambrose School in Boise, Idaho, and editor of the Classical Difference magazine. They've co-authored the new book, Just Out, Battle for the American Mind, Uprooting a Century of Miseducation. Let's begin with you, Pete. I, I've read the book. I must say what surprised me is how this transformation began years ago. The replacement of classical education in public schools just didn't happen overnight. And I know in the book you tell how Marxists from the Frankfurt School of Social Theory 
fled Nazi Germany, brought their ideas to America. Also, John Dewey advanced critical theory here. So briefly explain, explain for our viewers how we arrived at this point. Gary, you're right. It happened gradually, and then it happened suddenly, as Hemingway would put it. And when David and I both approached this topic, our assumption was maybe it was a product of the 60s at first, and it quickly became qu clear uh, that this was even... Even before the Frankfurt School, when the Marxists showed up with critical theory, John Dewey and early progressives in the early 20th century uh, made school their intentional target because they understood the affections, uh, the education of our youngest minds were the most important if they were going to change the social fabric, uh, the social construct of America, which was their goal from the beginning. These were all atheists. These were all socialists, or almost all of them were. And their, their goal was social change. And they knew the schoolroom was the place they could do it. And it started with the removal of God. It happened over 100 years ago, which is why, as you pointed out, neither David nor I are surprised when you see the kind of lunacy we see today. And David, tell us more. I know it wasn't just uh, with the schools. What affected the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Earl Warren have on public education in America? Well, that was the capstone of the progressive model and the progressive intent. They uh, had the courts under their control by the early 1960s and through a series of uh, Supreme Court cases, they gradually took prayer out of school. They then took the Bible out of school and they then forbid uh, really any teaching of Christian uh, instruction in school. But that was the kind of the capstone of a long effort. It wasn't the beginning, it was really the end. Um, the beginning was uh, in about 1915 or thereabouts when they set out intentionally with the Gary Plan and with uh, several other uh, initiatives to sideline Christianity. And, and then obviously once they had uh, orphaned it, uh, they could push it to the side and uh, they had full control of the classroom at that point. Pete, you suggested that starting in the 1920s, classical Christian education was replaced with nationalism, the pledge, country, all have merit, but they have weaknesses because God is taken out of the classroom. And today it's progressed to the pledge without God, government instead of country, equity instead of equality, vocational training over reasoning, values instead of virtue, morality without Judeo-Christian religious faith. Explain a little more for us. Well said by you. It ultimately, it was a it was a it was a shift from a seeking truth through God to seeking truth or validation to government. From and, and it was it, it's not the ideas of you know good and healthy patriotism or fidelity to your country or appreciation for the founding in 1776 and those ideas. It was allegiance to the state. And you mentioned the Pledge of Allegiance. We look at our Pledge of Allegiance, at least you know we do as conservatives or and patriots and say, hey, that's a great thing under God. Well, the original pledge was written in the late 19th century by a uh, socialist who ultimately wrote it without under God because the pledge was meant to shift kids away comfortably from God at the center of the classroom, the cross at the center, to the flag at the center of the classroom, which was an easier sell to parents at the time. And now, of course, fast forward to today, and they're happy to get rid of the flag, kneel for the anthem, get rid of the pledge. Um, prayer long gone, now patriotism is the next target as they move toward their woke social justice, frankly, culturally Marxist agenda in our classroom. 
And Pete, you and I are both followers of Jesus. You talk about how this uh, paideia means, quote, history is rejected, science is God, the state is the temple, which citizen workers worship. So as journalists, we deal every day with the political, but beyond politics here, it seems there's a well-devised strategy that is really a spiritual one. What do you think? It was spiritual from the beginning, and I'd love to have David chime in on this as well. Paideia is, is an ancient Greek word that's long forgotten. It doesn't even have a direct translation in, in English, but it's throughout our book. In fact, David's the one that, that really put the meat on the bones of the Western Christian paideia. You see, we, we fight in terms of politics now and, and may win incremental battles here or there. What the left understood is they had to go at the heart of what made us who we are. What do we value? What's our vision of the good life? Um, what do we what do we consider our virtues? And when they targeted that, they targeted at the foundation of who we really are, really the current underneath the top waters of the stream. If culture's the top waters, the current is paideia underneath, uh, and they targeted that. Yes, I, I think if we turn to Ephesians 6, it really, it's a great chapter that kind of encapsulates the responsibilities and the upbringing of every, you know pretty much all the classes of society at the time, but it says fathers raise your children in the, and there's a whole bunch of words that are used there, education, instruction. The two that are most commonly used are fear and admonition. All of those are derived from the one word paideia. So it's a command of our Lord to raise children in the paideia of the Lord. And therefore we ought to be looking at what that means. When we return more with Pete Hegseth and David Goodwin and a look at classical Christian education, the woke classroom alternative. Now, more with Pete Hegseth and David Goodwin, authors of the new book, Battle for the American Mind, Uprooting a Century of Miseducation. In the book, you suggest that many evangelical Christian schools today believe they're teaching Christian education, but they still have progressive influences. Tell us more. Well, when John Dewey took over the school system, it was believed by most people in 1915 to be a Christian school system in the United States. And so as he shifted, as Pete was earlier talking about, shifting away from Christianity and towards sort of an American paideia devoid of God, they took Christianity out and created subjects like social studies. But by 1950, many Christian schools were just teaching the same subjects that uh, public schools were teaching, sociology, um, social studies, those sorts of things. And so um, they added some Bible classes and, and some prayer, but they really were still teaching a progressive curriculum. So what we're advocating in the book is to move back towards that original curriculum, which puts Christ at the center of all things. And you guys talk about classical Christian education, CCE, as the appropriate response, the alternative to public education. Tell us more about that. How can concerned parents send their kids to classical Christian schools? And I'm thinking, Pete, at a time of skyrocketing inflation when many Americans have mm -hmm. to choose between putting gas in the tank or food on their tables, how can they afford it? First of all, look at look inside your life and the things you spend money on, the things you value, and how much is the, uh, the hearts, souls, and affections, how much are your kids' uh, affections worth in your mind? Then I would say, compared to most Catholic schools, private schools, Christian schools, certainly elite schools, 
classical Christian is far more affordable, and David can talk a lot more about it since he runs the largest association of K-12 schools. There are also homeschooling options. There are online classical Christian options. We, we cannot afford at all to default to the local public school because you're effectively sending your kids to, to what we call Democrat camp, or at least left-wing camp, uh, for 40 hours a week, and you're trying to deprogram them on uh, Sunday morning and on Wednesday night. Right. Our organization is largely a support organization that uh, provides uh, parallel infrastructure for classical Christian schools like accreditation and that sort of thing. But I would say that our average school is about $7,500 a year in tuition, which uh, puts a number on it. But obviously, it's more or less depending on which school you're dealing with. And I think that um, there's other alternatives, uh, like Pete mentioned, uh, co-ops or shared what we call shared instructional models, where your kid may be in school for two or three days a week, and those generally cost even half of that. What's the takeaway from this one? What do you want people to understand and do? Take action. The time is now. First and foremost, do what's best for your kids and your grandkids by radically reorienting your life around their education. The book is... Battle for the American Mind, Uprooting a Century of Miseducation. I recommend it. I've read it. It's wonderful. Pete Hegseth, David Goodwin, thank you for sharing your time and insights. We appreciate it. Gary, thank you. Thank you very much. Father's Day is a time to honor dad, but today in the USA, fewer fathers are around to honor. According to U.S. government statistics, nearly 20 million children, about one of every four American kids, are going up without a father at the home. What does it mean to a child, especially young boys, to grow up with a father there to guide them? Well, here to share some special memories about his presidential dad is Ronald Reagan's son, Michael Reagan. Michael is an author, political commentator, and president of the Reagan Legacy Foundation. Michael, I want us to discuss the work of the Reagan Legacy Foundation in a moment. But first, unlike about 25% of American kids, you grew up with a dad in the home. And I don't know of anyone other than maybe your siblings who can say that their dad was an actor, a governor, and president. But I know from talking to you in the past, despite his busy schedule, your dad spent time with you. So what difference did that make in your life? Well, I wrote a book called Lessons My Father Taught Me. One of the lessons they say he taught me was about family. And, you know, as you probably are well aware, my mother and father divorced when I was three years of age. So Maureen and I were raised by my mother. But my father never forgot that he had another family, and that was Maureen and I. And so weekends, Saturdays would be spent with dad, picking us up at the house, driving us out to the ranch in Malibu, riding horses, cutting firewood, shooting ground squirrels, swimming in the afternoon. And regaling me with all kinds of stories about America, about everything you could think of under the sun. That's how I learned about America from a father who was a, who was a patriot, if you will. And, and too often in this era that we live in, uh, people treat marriage like it's a date. We had a bad date, so I'm getting rid of it. And they forget about the kids within the marriage. And they go on to the next marriage and the next relationship and forget that they had a couple of children behind or one child behind. And a, and a child really needs a father in the home that's going to be there that a child can talk to, relate to, do things with, and what have you. And even though my father was very busy and he was married to another woman, had another family he was starting, he never did forget Maureen. He never forgot me. And I talked about it in the eulogy to my father back when he died in 2004. Fathers, as you say, are so important to teach their sons, especially honor, respect, discipline. 
Was your dad ever a bit tougher on you than maybe he was on Gorbachev at that summit in Reykjavik when he told him yet? Well, the reality of it was dad was, he was a pushover. You know, dad taught you all those things, but mom is the one that carried the whip. And so my mother had a riding crop, used it 10 times the back of each leg. She only had to use it one time in her life. Uh, I turned myself in another time and she just laughed. Uh, but mom was a disciplinarian, as Nancy was a disciplinarian, you know, with Patty and Ron. Uh, you know, everybody, everybody loved dad, but everybody was mad at their mothers for being disciplinarians. But again, it just never saw dad get upset, never saw him really get mad. But he brought those, he brought those Midwestern values with him uh, to California, and he never lost those Midwestern values. And so I'm blessed because of that. And hopefully I the same with my son. My son Cameron, who's now 43, um, has two little girls, a four-year-old and a six-year-old. You know what I tell him? I tell him, Cameron, if I wasn't your father, I'd want you to be my father. He has grown up to be such a great young man and a great father, and I'm looking forward to Father's Day and being with him and maybe going to see another movie because we do movies together. Michael, a special project of the Reagan Legacy Foundation is the Walkway to Victory Project. And I, I know it's designed to honor and memorialize our nation's veterans. Many were or are dads. Remind us about the project. We started the Walkway to Victory a few years ago when I visited uh, Normandy and went to St. Mary Glees, Normandy, France, first town freed by America at 4 a.m. in the morning at D-Day. It would be the 101st and 82nd Airborne's Gettysburg, if you will. That's where all the paratroopers were going. You saw Saving Private Riot. You saw The Longest Day. They filmed it there at St. Mary Glees. And we partnered with the Airborne Museum there uh, to do a brick project where people can go online to walkawaytovictory.com, purchase a brick for $250, and put the name of a loved one on, a friend on it, a unit they served in, the years that they served. And then we you know, we put that brick, we installed that brick at St. Mary Glees at the Airborne Museum for all time for people to be able to see, for your loved ones to be able to see. And if you don't know someone, you can go to ReaganLegacyFoundation.org, get our address, send us a check for 250 bucks, put in the memo, brick project. We have lots of names of World War II vets, European theater that we can put on that brick. And you'll get all the information and see the person that you sponsored to have that brick installed at St. Mary Glees. Normandy, France, and it's a 501c3 company that we have, so it's tax-deductible donation, and any dollars left over from it helps us supply scholarships to the men and women who serve aboard the USS Ronald Reagan, so walkwaytovictory.com. A win-win. Michael Reagan, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for sharing those memories and insights. Thank you. From all of us here at the Global Lane, happy Father's Day. We'll see you next time. Until then, be blessed.